Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. We should always be thinking about decaying kids with abdominal pain and vomiting. The way to prevent cerebral edema and DKA is to prevent the DKA in the first place and for all physicians to be thinking about diabetes in kids. Knowing that, that this metabolic state needs to have slow correction is key. If you're an emergency physician in 2015 and there are guidelines that are being published both internationally and from a Canadian perspective and they tell you to be judicious with the fluids, I don't think you have a leg to stand on if you're going to go rogue. Dr. Sarah Reed is an emergency pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario in Ottawa. She's the Director of Continuing Medical Education and a Clinical Investigator at CHEO. Dr. Sarah Curtis is a pediatric emergency physician and researcher in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. DKA was identified as one of the key diagnoses that we need to get better at managing in a massive national needs assessment conducted by the fine folks at TREC, Translating Emergency Knowledge for Kids, one of the EM case's partners whose mission it is to improve the care of children in non-pediatric emergency departments across the country. Now, you might be wondering, why was DKA singled out in this needs assessment? Well, it turns out that kids who present to the ED and DKA without a known history of diabetes can sometimes be tricky to diagnose, as they often present with vague symptoms. Come to think of it, I've missed a couple of cases myself that I know of and probably a couple that I'm not even aware of. When a child does have a known history of diabetes and the diagnosis of DKA is obvious, The challenge turns to managing severe life-threatening DKA so that we avoid the many potential complications of DKA itself, as well as the complications of treatment. Now, the approach to these patients has evolved over the years, even since I've started practicing, from bolusing insulin and super-aggressive fluid resuscitation to more gentle fluid management and delayed insulin drips, as examples. And we're seeing more and more pediatric patients with type 2 diabetes as the obesity epidemic spreads. Now, there are subtleties and controversies in the management of DKA when it comes to fluid management, correcting serum potassium and acidosis, preventing cerebral edema, as well as airway management for the really sick kids. In this episode, we'll be asking our guest pediatric emergency medicine experts, Dr. Sarah Reed, who you may remember from her powerhouse performance on our recent episodes on pediatric fever and sepsis, and Dr. Sarah Curtis, not only a pediatric emergency physician, but a prominent pediatric emergency researcher in Canada, about the key historical and examination pearls to help pick up this sometimes elusive diagnosis, what the value of serum ketones are in the diagnosis of DKA, how to assess the severity of DKA to guide management, how to avoid the dreaded cerebral edema that all too often complicates DKA, how to best adjust fluids and insulin during the treatment, which kids can go home, which kids can go to the floor, and which kids need to be transferred to a pediatric ICU. By the end of this episode, it's my hope that you'll not only feel more confident in picking up the diagnosis of DKA, but you'll garner a deeper understanding of the intricacies of management and disposition to improve prognosis in your patients. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce the two Sarahs, Dr. Reed and Dr. Curtis. Welcome. Hi, Anton. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much. Awesome. Now, as per usual, we're going to start with the case. But this time, when listening to the case that I'm about to present, try to think of it in the context of not knowing that the diagnosis will be DKA, so that you can get a flavor of how difficult it sometimes can be to make this diagnosis in the ED. So here's the first case. A four-year-old boy presents to your ED with his parents complaining of abdominal pain and shortness of breath since waking that morning. They report no fever, no vomiting, and normal bowel movements. He has no cough and no chest pain. They report that he's been going to the bathroom more often than usual to urinate. His past medical history is totally unremarkable. On exam, he appears fatigued but alert and oriented with a GCS of 15. He's tachypneic with deep respirations but no indrawing. Chest is clear, cap refill is 2 seconds, mucous membranes are dry. His abdominal exam is benign, and the neuro exam is grossly normal. So again, we we all know that the diagnosis is going to be DKA in this child, because that's what the episode's about. 
But DKA is not the first thing we think of in a child with belly pain or shortness of breath. Dr. Curtis, what are some of the clues in this case that would trigger you to think of the possibility of DKA? Okay, so he could have a simple illness, like a viral illness. He could have pneumonia. He could have a urinary tract infection. And those are the things that we commonly think about. But the things that should make us think of DKA are the tachypnea without indrawing. That sort of differentiates it from respiratory processes. He's also very tachypnic with deep respirations. And that makes us think about Cosmos breathing. His mucous membranes are dry, so he's likely quite dehydrated, even though he hasn't been vomiting, which we may think of more commonly with DK. And just to add the historical feature of the polyuria and polydipsia, you won't always get that from parents, but often when you ask about it in hindsight, they will report, or perhaps that the child's having some bedwetting that they're otherwise previously trained. Parents may even note that the child has lost weight. They won't know the number, but they'll say that the child's clothes are looser. Um, so those are some things that come out on the historical features. And then the other piece uh, regarding the Kuzmal breathings is this is a clear chest and in, in a child with an absence of cough, absence of fever. So you really have to get away from the common respiratory type diagnosis that we're used to making, especially at this time of the year, and be thinking about the metabolic causes of increased respirate. So I'd like to give our listeners an idea of the breadth of presentations of pediatric DKA and when to suspect the disease. Which kids should we be looking out for the diagnosis in the first place? In other words, what are the risk factors for DKA and what are some of the presentations that might lead us astray? So we should always be thinking about decaying kids with abdominal pain and vomiting or kids with isolated vomiting, kids with polyuria, polydipsia, fatigue, um, also kids with known diabetes. So kids who have had previous episodes of DKA have poor glucose control in general. Teenagers are at high risk for poor um, insulin administration and um, are high risk in general, particularly adolescent females. Children who are on pumps, there can be pump failures and the child may not know or the family might not know about this. And so they think that insulin has been administered, but it is not. And so their sugars become higher over time. And uh, they usually will present with some symptoms as well of polyuria and polydipsia. And of course, if there are some difficult family situations or um, difficult social circumstances, the care to medical attention may be not the best. And so they're high risk for DKA. Yeah, I would also add um, headaches and just in general in a child who presents with sort of vague symptomatology or a child who's sick, just like we do for any of the other presentations, doing a bedside glucose test plus or minus a urine is a very simple thing that all eMERGE physicians can just put into their back pocket, that they just routinely do that in those presentations, and then you'll start picking up some of those more vague presentations. Okay, so the kid who's breathing quickly or deeply without any obvious respiratory cause, the kid with belly pain who's got a totally benign belly, the kid with altered mental status where there's no obvious sepsis or any obvious meningitis or anything like that, um, these are the kids that we really need to think about a metabolic cause. And DKA is at the top of the list of metabolic causes, and just a simple finger prick glucose can make the diagnosis right right. there. I mean, you're doing that in all your sick patients anyway, so just keep it on the list for sure. So now that you've got this child in front of you, and you might be wondering whether they're suffering from DKA, what do you specifically ask for on the history, and what do you look for on the physical exam? So we want to ask about the symptoms of diabetes, so polyuria, polydipsia, enuresis, weight loss. We want to ask about the symptoms that can be associated with DKA. So headache, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, decreased alertness. And then we also want to think about um, the fact that kids often have a precipitating illness that starts them into the DKA process. And so we common things are like strep throat, um, respiratory virus. So asking about um, viral symptoms, the presence of fever, even rarely appendicitis could be the precipitating cause. So um, exploring their belly pain in more detail would be important. Yeah, I think also in in seasons where we see a lot of gastroenteritis with vomiting and diarrhea can be easy to sort of be anchored into that diagnosis and keeping in mind those kids who only have vomiting and just having a low threshold to get that glucose scan at the bedside is paramount. Even if they do have vomiting and diarrhea 
and you have some extra features like really dry Kussmaul's breathing, it's a good idea just to get the glucometer by the bedside. So suffice to say that if you have a kid who you've got a diagnosis of some viral illness or appendicitis, if there are features that are not in keeping with that diagnosis and they look sicker than you'd expect, that's when we've got to start thinking about DKA. That's right. Now, while I'm not the hugest fan of detailed pathophys, I know that the best physicians out there are the ones who understand the pathophysiology. So in order to understand how to manage these kids effectively with DKA, we need to know a bit of pathophys. Dr. Reed, can you give us the abridged version of what we need to know about DKA, how it happens, and why it's important for us to understand? Sure. So this is a feature of type 1 diabetes, and we all know that the issue with type 1 diabetes is that there's not enough insulin around. So you have an insulin deficiency, um, and so that makes your body unable to deal with glucose as a primary energy source. So we start to convert free fatty acids for energy, and that's a good thing because it gives the body energy, but it's a bad thing because it creates keto acids, making a metabolic acidosis for the person. The other thing that's happening is that because we don't have insulin around, we have an increase in stress hormones, and that makes us create more glucose through gluconeogenesis, and we don't use glucose as well. So you end up getting an osmotic diuresis because you have a high serum glucose. You get dehydrated from that. You're getting a metabolic acidosis. That's causing your potassium to go into the cells and causing a relative whole body hypokalemia. And so you sort of have four things going on. You have a metabolic acidosis, you have an osmotic diuresis, which is going to lead you to be dehydrated, and you also will be hypokalemic because of the osmotic diuresis as well as the acidosis. So those are the big things that are happening in a type 1 diabetic with DKA. Okay, that was fantastic, Dr. Reed. Now that we've got a bit of an understanding of how DKA develops, it's time to nail down the diagnosis in the child in the ED sitting in front of us. Dr. Curtis, what are the diagnostic criteria of DKA? So you have to have the clinical features present. So polyuria, polydipsia, fatigue, perhaps vomiting, perhaps belly pain, and in the extreme DKA decreased level of consciousness or other neurological symptoms may be present. The laboratory diagnosis involves three key features. First of all, there needs to be um, acidosis present, so a pH less than 7.3 or a bicarb less than 15. Secondly, the ketones are present in the urine. And thirdly, the glucose needs to be greater than 11.1 millimoles per liter. And in terms of the acidosis, that would be on an ABG or a VBG, or doesn't it matter? It does not matter. In, in PEDS, we tend to use venous gases or cap gases. The easiest thing to do if you don't have IV access is just to get a stat cap gas. Okay, and I understand that the literature supports the use of VBGs in DKA in particular, that it's as accurate as an ABG, and that it certainly suffices for the diagnosis. Certainly in pediatrics in general, if you're looking at a sort of a metabolic cause of an acid base abnormality, a venous gas is absolutely adequate. And for respiratory things, we generally use cap gases with the oxygen saturation gives you all the information that the ABG does. Knowing that the diagnostic criteria for DKA involves acidosis, ketones, glucose, etc., what tests should we be ordering? And in particular, are serum ketones necessary? You know, I've seen lots of docs ordering serum ketones on everyone suspected of DKA. Is that necessary? Let's first talk about what do you generally order? So I would generally order a serum glucose, electrolytes, BUN, creatinine, the urine for ketones, and a venous blood gas. At our center, we do do the hemoglobin A1C, and we would do thyroid antibodies because hypothyroidism is pretty common in these kids as well. In terms of urine versus serum ketones, well, put it this way, I've never ordered serum ketones. Um, and never? Never. Wow, okay. So at our center, it would take a long time for them to come back, so I don't think they really change or help your management. I've never seen a child with DKA present with a normal urinalysis. I do know that there's some issues related to the accuracy of uh, urine ketones early in the diagnosis, but I think practically on a clinical level, in my experience in the, you know, sort of 40 or 50 kids that I've managed with DKA over the years, that urine has always been positive for ketones. I think they're sick enough by the time they present that we obviate that difficulty with the early ketones being negative. 
Yeah, I agree. And you're going to confirm your diagnosis with, with a repeat serum, glucose, electrolytes, et cetera, and have that clinical picture in the background. So really, I think it's uncommon, if ever. So the bottom line when it comes to assessing for ketones in a kid with DKA is that a urine is totally fine. And don't worry about getting serum ketones. Let's say you send for a urinalysis and the ketones are negative, but you still suspect that the child has DKA. Would that be a situation where you might do a serum ketones? That's an interesting scenario you've brought up. You've brought up a scenario that might be consistent with HHS. So these kids can present with symptoms similar to DKA, but they have a very mild acidosis on their gas. Their urine ketones may be absent or just barely positive, but their glucose is very high and their osmolality is very high. So in that case, because that's a complex and uncommon disorder, that's a case that you would definitely need to speak to the endocrinologist about and just prompt them, is this a case of HHS instead of DKA or a mixed picture? Okay. And, you know, in adults, we see HSS quite often, but in kids... Very rare in children. Really, it's stress that is associated with more with type 2 diabetes. And as you mentioned off the top, we're seeing more type 2 diabetes in children. However, still a very rare disorder. In fact, so rare that it's not really even mentioned in the pediatric portion of the Canadian Diabetes Association guidelines. It's really only mentioned as part of the adult guidelines with respect to type 2. So I really think we're talking about a very rare disorder, but I think Sarah makes a very good point that if things aren't fitting, that's even more of an indication that you need to be on the phone with a specialist. So in the case that I presented, the child seems moderately sick with the Kuzmal breathing, etc., the management of the child will depend on the severity of the disease. So how do we determine the severity of the DKA besides just our gestalt? And how does that guide your management? So it's pretty clear how we're supposed to stratify these patients. So mild DKA is a pH less than 7.3 and or a bicarb less than 15. Moderate is a pH less than 7.2 and or a bicarb less than 10. And severe is a pH less than 7.1, and a bicarb less than 5. Okay, so for bicarb, it's 15, 10, and 5 for mild, moderate, severe. And for pH, it's 7.3, 7.2, 7.1 for mild, moderate, severe. The key goals in managing DKA are to correct hypovolemia, correct acidosis, reverse ketosis, restore glucose to normal, monitor for complications, and treat any precipitating event. These are pretty much the same goals for pediatric DKA as they are for adult DKA. Now, some of us community and adult ED docs are quite familiar with the management of adult DKA, and of course, there are differences in managing kids with DKA. Can you outline for us what the differences in managing adult DKA versus pediatric DKA are? So understanding that we're not adult doctors, <laughs> but uh, when we look at the two algorithms that are published by the C uh, Canadian Diabetes Association in 2013, the major differences that I see are that the fluid for adults is more generous. Okay. We're talking one to two liters per hour for the people who are quite dehydrated. And the control of potassium is much more stressed in the adult guidelines, which is probably reflective of myocardiums that aren't super happy, which is different from kids. And then the third piece that's, that strikes me is that for adults who are quite acidotic with like a pH less than 7.0, bicarb is actually on the list of treatments that are given. Whereas in children, bicarb is nowhere near the list. Um, the fluid is a bit more judicious and potassium we replace, but we're not as worried about it as the adult physicians are. So this is a complex disease and it can be very stressful to manage. And so the important thing to remember is that there are algorithms for pediatrics out there and it's important to reach for one of those, one that you know and become familiar with, or contact your local pediatric center who most likely will have an algorithm that they can fax to you. Yeah, it's especially true for Emergency physicians who treat both adults and kids, it's very difficult to remember all the specific cutoffs. And so giving our listeners a general idea of the differences, I think is important. But when it comes to actually treating these kids, once you've made the diagnosis, pull out that algorithm and go by the algorithm and speak to your pediatrician and come up with a plan. Absolutely. The, f the first thing on most of the algorithms is contact the diabetes specialist 
who's at your referral center. So that's an, that's absolutely the first thing you need to do. And that person is going to guide you. There's some math involved. It can be a little bit complex. This is something that has high stakes associated with it. So it's definitely one of those high stakes disorders that needs um, specialty care. We had outlined how to identify kids with mild, moderate, and severe pediatric DKA. Now let's talk a little bit about how their treatment differs. So let's start with mild DKA. So the child with minimal hypovolemia, tolerating oral fluid, let's say a pH just under the cutoff of 7.3 and a bicarb of 12, how would you manage this kid? So this child comes in and you're going to do your history and physical, you're making sure that you've done a full assessment, looking for the underlying cause of their DKA, and and then you're going to send the blood work a stat, and that is including the things we talked about before, so glucose, lights, BUN, creatinine, venous blood gas, the hemoglobin A1C, and the thyroid studies. And then as soon as we get the gas back, if we see that we've got some mild metabolic aberrations, we call the diabetes doctor on call. Um, so even at a specialty uh, emergency department where I work, we call the diabetes physician right away. And then if the child is able to tolerate fluids and is looking well and only has mild DKA, in general, those patients are treated as outpatients. So they would receive a very teeny tiny dose of insulin because they're usually kind of in the honeymoon phase. So their pancreas is still making a bit of insulin. So they only need a very small amount. And then they are actually sent home. They return to emerge or to the clinic if it's during the week, the following morning, where they have their blood sugar checked in the morning, they eat, um, and then they start getting all their teaching. So this is an outpatient illness if it's mild DKA. And in the eMERGE, subcutaneous insulin will suffice for these kids? Absolutely. So in the past, anyone with new onset diabetes, even those not in DKA would have been admitted to hospital and they would have been in for days and days getting all their teaching and it really medicalizes the condition. And so there's a real push more recently to make this an outpatient illness to really normalize for the family because they're going to have to be managing this out in the community for the child's life. So right from the start, that's the tone that's set. So that's for those that present not in DKA, but a new onset diabetic, and even those with mild DKA if they're able to tolerate their fluids. Yeah, and administering the insulin subcutaneously in the ED allows for some teaching as well and demonstration that the child is able to drink, which is what we want for them to go home. That's right. And there may be times where there may be social reasons or the family may live very far away that they might be admitted for those types of reasons. But in general, this is done through the eMERGE and the patient is discharged home. They may be kept for a period of observation through their next meal and have a few cereal sugars done, making sure they tolerate oral. But in general, the milds, in my experience, are discharged home. One caveat to that, however, is the young children, so kids under five and particularly under two years of age who present even in mild DKA, those kids generally do get admitted to hospital even though they could be managed as outpatients because that age group is a bit of a higher risk group and a little bit more tricky to manage the insulin. It may be hard to get them to eat and drink well and it may be hard to assess their mental status and those kinds of things. Okay, so that gives us a really good idea of the mild DKA kid and we'll be reviewing again the disposition of all kids with DKA at the end. So we've been talking about the child who's not hyperventilating, not vomiting, and just mildly hypovolemic and tolerating fluids and can be managed with oral hydration and subcutaneous insulin. So that's the mild DKA patient. Let's move it up a notch. And now we've got a kid who's hyperventilating, like the one in our case. Let's say the kid's a bit drowsy, vomiting, their pH and bicarb are a bit worse, say a pH of 7.1 and a bicarb of 7. They look pretty dry. They're a bit tachycardic, but not in shock. So this is the moderate DKA patient. How do you manage the kid with moderate DKA in the first hour or two? Okay, so the key to remember here is that DKA took a few days to manifest clinically. And so it's okay to relax and think about starting fluid slowly. So we recommend starting normal saline, but slowly replacing the deficit and the, the maintenance needs over 48 hours. Wow. So that's a key point there. I mean, most kids that I see who are tachycardic and have been vomiting and they're drowsy, I'm telling the nurse, you know, stick in an IV, bolus 20 milliliters per kilogram now. So I just want to reiterate this point. 
We don't have to rush to the fluids. That's right. And we could potentially make things worse if we bolus fluids. So thinking about not doing harm and knowing that that this um, metabolic state needs to have slow correction is key. And so we start fluids. We're going to replace the fluids evenly over 48 hours. And understanding also that our assessments of dehydration in this patient may be unclear because they are Kussmaul breathing. So their mucous membranes look very, very dry. However, they're usually estimated to be about four to eight percent dehydrated. And they might look more dehydrated when you're looking at mucous membranes. And so try to resist the temptation to bolus those fluids as we do in other illnesses like gastroenteritis, those kids who are volume depleted. These kids need slow and steady rehydration. So the fluid replacement should not exceed twice the maintenance rate of fluid requirements in general for these kids with moderate DKA. Yes, that's a good guideline. And then I think the key is to really reach for that protocol because it is a bit complex and there is some math. And so reaching for the protocol will help to sit down and figure that out, what each individual child needs. The general principle with fluids is don't just do something, stand there sort of thing. You shouldn't be aggressively bullsing these kids who aren't in shock. Yes, yeah, that's something that comes out in all of the guidelines. And they've the guidelines, both internationally and Canadian guidelines, have been updated within the last year or two. And they're still talking about the fact that bolusing should not be used unless the patient is in shock. And when I say shock, I mean hypotension or impaired perfusion. So I would say to the general emergency physician who's encountering this illness, it's going to be much more likely that you're encountering a, ch- encountering a child with moderate dehydration. So the, st- the studies looking at estimation of dehydration and DKA would indicate that physicians overestimate it in about two-thirds. And as Sarah mentioned, those studies also tell us that most kids with DKA are moderately dehydrated between 4 and 8%. So unless they're really truly in shock, you don't need to bolus. And that's usually decompensated shock, which you'll see by blood pressure measurements that are abnormal. That's right. And so, yeah, sorry. And, and, and we know that most of the kids that you're going to see are sort of to and over with this illness. So your minimum acceptable blood pressure for children aged one and over is 70 plus two times the age in years. That's the systolic blood pressure. That is the minimum acceptable. So if they're underneath that, they are hypotensive. They are in decompensated shock. That is a patient that you would bolus, but you would be at the bedside reassessing after each bolus. You would not be running the fluid wide open with no reassessment. No, and the recommendations are to use 5 to 10 cc's per kilo at each episode of bolusing and then rec- and then reassessing. So really using small boluses is key just to get that blood pressure normalized. Okay, so we've covered the fluid in the moderate DKA kid. The next thing we think about is insulin. Dr. Curtis, you had mentioned that we should be delaying giving the insulin. We shouldn't be giving it off the bat. Can you just give us a little bit more detail about starting insulin in the child with moderate DKA. Okay, so the um, at, at first you're going to manage the child by starting normal saline. You have about one to two hours of normal saline before you initiate insulin, and it will be an insulin drip. The general recommendations are 0.1 units per kilo per hour, although for new diabetics you might even start that a, a little bit lower, 0.05 units per kilo per hour, and that decision would happen with the endocrinologist. Okay, so definitely not bolusing insulin like we used to in the old days. So between 0.05 and 0.1 units per kilogram per hour, drip, no bolusing. And this is something that we start at least an hour, hour or two after we've initiated fluid management, which will not involve big boluses of fluid. That's right. I think if you remember 0.1 units per kilo per hour, that's a safe start. And just to be aware that new diabetics may require even less. The other principle is that really it's hydration is needed primarily at first that will help decrease the glucose level, but insulin is needed to reverse the acidosis ultimately. So it must be started, but not until about one to two hours after fluids have started. And the whole point of not being aggressive with both the fluid and the insulin is we want to prevent cerebral edema. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's a British study that was published in the mid 2000s, a case control study that looked at fluid and insulin starting in patients with cerebral edema and DKA and those just with DKA. And there was a very significantly increased risk of cerebral edema found in this study when the children got 
insulin early in their course. And that is the reason why all of the protocols have changed in the last few years to account for this delay in starting insulin. So there's just one study by Edge in 2006 that caused this whole change in the management of DKA. And now the international and Canadian guidelines both reflect the delay in starting insulin until one to two hours after IV fluids being started. Okay. So while this might not be on the hierarchy of evidence-based medicine, it's not an RCT, it's not a systematic review or meta-analysis that's telling us to delay the starting of insulin. It's all we got. And this is part of the guideline. So this is what it is expected to do. Let's talk a little bit about potassium. Now, in adults, it's recommended not to start insulin until the potassium level is confirmed to be 3.5 milliequivalents per liter minimum. It's vital to know the serum potassium level prior to starting insulin therapy in order to avoid a lethal hypokalemia-induced dysrhythmia that would be induced by giving insulin to a patient with low potassium, pushing the potassium out of the cells even more. An ECG can also assist in detecting any signs of hypo or hyperkalemia that may be seen in these patients. Now, below a potassium level of 5.5, it's recommended that 20 to 30 milliequivalents of KCL should be added to each liter of fluid to prevent hypokalemia from occurring with insulin therapy. Now, this is what's recommended with the adults. In kids with DKA, What do we do about the potassium? How does potassium play into this? And how does giving the insulin relate to the potassium? So I think it's a little bit less stringent as it is in adults. And that's likely, as we said before, related to children having healthy myocardium. They're a little bit less prone to fatal arrhythmias, thank goodness. And so we know that there's a total body depletion of potassium in the DKA process from the osmotic diuresis and from the shifting in the cells. So we know even if the serum potassium is normal, in general, they are relatively hypokalemic. So the protocols generally state that if the initial potassium is less than 5.5 and the patient has peed, that you need to add 40 milliequivalents of potassium, and it usually is potassium chloride at the beginning, um, into your normal saline that you're using as your IV fluid. We don't routinely order ECGs unless they are hypo or hyperkalemic on the initial blood work. And if the level is normal initially, you don't need to start the potassium right away. You can wait till the insulin infusion is started. But because you will need to replace it, it probably will drop. Um, So at that point, you can add your potassium. So suffice to say that managing the potassium in DKA in kids isn't as stringent as in adults, and that we don't absolutely have to know the potassium before we start insulin. We can start the insulin, and that if the potassium comes back in the lab 5.5 or less, then we can start 40 milliequivalents of KCL per liter in our slow, normal saline IV. Yeah. And I mean, practically speaking, remember, we're not starting our insulin until one to two hours after our IV has started. So we're going to have those labs back. So you're not going to be ordering the potassium in the dark. You're going to know what your level is and you're okay. able to make it. Yeah. This is very different than adult DKA where in adult DKA, I become a really annoying physician to the nurses and say, where's the potassium? Where's the potassium? Where's the potassium? Because I want to know that potassium really early on because I'm usually starting insulin earlier than I would in kids, and I can only start the insulin when I know what the potassium is. Yeah, in general, kids can tolerate losses of potassium. We will see potassiums in the low threes, maybe even in the twos in other illnesses. So um, they're healthy, they have healthy hearts, healthy kidneys, and once they're becoming rehydrated and stop losing fluids, their potassium will recover. In this condition DK, we do anticipate that it is going to be on the low side because there is a relative hypokalemia. And so we will need to replace potassium, but we don't need to do that right away. Let's move on to case number two. This one's a bit more sphincter tightening because it's the severe DKA child. So a two-year-old girl presents with lethargy for the past 24 hours. She has no infectious signs or symptoms or contacts. The excellent triage nurse carries the child in her arms directly to the resuscitation room, 
as she's really worried about her. She looks altered, huffing and puffing, with vitals showing a heart rate of 150, blood pressure of 80 on 50, respiratory rate of 44, and normal O2 sats. Her topric glucometer shows a reading critically high, off the charts. There are no focal findings on gross neurologic exam. The blood gas comes back and looks terrible with a pH of 7.03 and a bicarb of 3. Dr. Curtis, how would you manage this patient in the first hour in the emergency department? So it's really important here to, first of all, take a deep breath. This is a kid who looks very unwell. You do know that she has high glucose and she's acidotic and the readings are severe DKA. Focus in on her mental status. Focus in on her blood pressure. She's a two-year-old and her blood pressure is 80 systolic. So the minimum systolic acceptable for her is 70 plus two times her age. So that would be 74. So I know that she's not in decompensated shock. I know she's got DKA. And I know that I should start fluids, but start them slowly. Wow. So again, this is a child who's really sick. The nurse is literally rushing the kid in her arms into your resuscitation room. They're really acidotic. I mean, my first thing would be to start putting in two IOs and start bolusing, bolusing. So this is the kind of patient, they're not in decompensated shock, so you don't need to bolus. That's right. And I think it's important to get access it might be an IV, it might be an IO in this case, but don't bolus. I mean, we know that bolusing fluids, or we think that bolusing fluids may precipitate cerebral edema. So we don't want to bolus, but we do want to replace her fluids steadily over 48 hours. I have time to start normal saline. I have time to reach for the protocol and calculate what her replacement should be per hour. We know that in children who are very acidotic, they will vasoconstrict and they will look mottled and they will look poorly perfused. And that's another reason why we overestimate their dehydration. Um, Her disability is a big issue. So if she is as altered as she sounds, she is a patient that you are worried that she is presenting with cerebral edema already. So she is a patient that you are elevating the head of the bed. You are giving her maintenance fluid only. You are asking the nurse to draw up some 3% hypertonic saline. You are asking for the nurse to draw up 0.5 to 1 gram of mannitol and you are ready to give those medications for her um, presumed raised ICP, and you are getting on the phone with the transfer service that you use at your site because this is a patient who is going to ICU. You know that within the first three minutes of seeing her. So this child was given a 400cc bolus of normal saline as well as an IV insulin bolus, and the nurse calls you back to the bedside a few minutes later, and the child's now stuporous and incontinent of urine. Her heart rate decreases from 150 to 90, and her blood pressure increases to 140 on 100. What's going on here? So this child came in. She was already unwell. She had, we had some concerns about her mental status from the beginning. She got a bolus of fluid, and now she's clearly got cerebral edema and is coning. Her blood pressure is increased. Her heart rate has decreased. So I think what you need to do is you need to make sure you have a full set of vitals, assess your pupils, see what kind of breathing she's doing. Is she chain stoking? Is this a patient that actually needs to be given mannitol rapidly, given 3% intubated and hyperventilated because she's acutely coning? Let's pretend all of this never happened. Because <laughs> <laughs> now that we all know about DKA, we know not to give a big fluid bolus or a big IV insulin bolus when they arrive. We had touched a bit on this a little bit. What I find difficult to know is when you have a child with severe DKA, you're wondering, well, could they be suffering from cerebral edema as well? What are some of the key things at the bedside that help you decide whether this is pure severe DKA or whether this is severe DKA plus cerebral edema where you have to start thinking about mannitol and hypertonic saline and getting help quick? Essentially, if you see a patient who has DKA and they're altered, presume they have cerebral edema. Okay, that's a great take-home point. So a kid who's truly altered, like their GCS is less than 14, let's say? Absolutely. That kid, we got to be thinking about cerebral edema right off the bat. Absolutely. So really, if you're seeing that abnormal neurological function, 
an abnormal GCS, really important to document that at the door for all of these kids who come in. And then if it changes during your management, and also knowing that during management, it's the highest risk phase for cerebral edema. So documenting a GCS initially and then during treatment is key. Um, so changes in GCS, any of those neurological focal findings, you just have to assume it is so. We can get a CT scan, but we don't need to do that right away. The patient needs to be stabilized first, managed, intubated, and have had their mannitol or 3% normal saline. So cerebral edema is a brutal complication of DKA that we almost never see in adults with DKA. Which kids do we really worry about cerebral edema in? And what are the most important things to know about how to avoid cerebral edema? So I think we have to understand that all the studies for DKA and cerebral edema and DKA are very small and not very good, but they're all we've got. And so you'll see repeated in all of the literature, these lists of risk factors, both patient and treatment associated risk factors for the development of cerebral edema. From a patient perspective, it's the little kids that seem to be at higher risk. So kids under five, new onset diabetics, patients who present later who are sicker, so they're drier, they have more metabolic derangement. Those are the kids that are at high risk. From a treatment perspective, the things that have sort of come out through these small little studies, retrospective, many of them, use of large amounts of fluid, use of hypotonic fluids, early administration of insulin, like we talked about earlier, use of sodium bicarb, and bolusing insulin. Those are the big things that have come out in these studies. Who's at risk for cerebral edema? So those kids that are at high risk for cerebral edema are the young kids, generally under five years of age, kids who have um, new onset diabetes, so not known previously, and their first presentation is in DKA. Kids that have greater acidosis, so a low pH and PCO2, their symptoms have been going on a little bit longer than, than another kid, and um, they look very severely dehydrated. I understand that it's very controversial whether overly zealous IV fluid administration is really the cause of cerebral edema in kids with DKA, or if it's really something else. Maybe it's the early starting of insulin. On the one hand, the guidelines say to avoid aggressive fluid resuscitation, which we've been talking about in the podcast. But on the other hand, we don't even know if it's the fluid that's really the cause of the cerebral edema. And we wouldn't want to under-resuscitate the child either. What's your take on this controversy and what should be the bottom line when it comes to fluid resuscitation and DKA? Yeah, I think that there's a lot in the literature recently about this. And traditionally, we have thought that um, the cerebral edema it was cytotoxic. So it was because of giving lots of fluid that the fluid would move into the cells that had made their own osmoles and that would cause the brain to swell. And that was why kids got cerebral edema. And more recently, there's some research, particularly coming out of California, their theory is that actually the cerebral edema is vasogenic. So it's actually probably related to some damage that happens to the blood-brain barrier. The brain's a bit more susceptible. And then there's a reperfusion injury that happens as the child is resuscitated. So it's been debated because we know that even up to sort of 20% of kids will actually present with cerebral edema. So obviously that's not related to treatment. So there's something different about those kids that come in and they're already really sick. We do know that the high risk time, as Dr. Curtis alluded to, is sort of in the first four to 12 hours with treatment. So there is something about treatment, but it's probably in a susceptible individual. And we also know that most kids, if we CT all kids, most kids with DKA will have some element of cerebral edema on their CT, which is kind of subclinical, they could be otherwise well. So in the literature, there's discussions about whether, you know, there's some element of the subclinical cerebral edema that happens in everybody. And then there's the subgroup of kids that just gets really sick. And then there's another group that gets sick with treatment. So we are stuck because we have these small retrospective studies that tell us, you know, lots of fluid, hypotonic fluid, the early insulin, all these treatment factors are associated with the development of cerebral edema. And yet there seems to be some underlying pathophysiology that we really don't understand yet. So bottom line from my perspective is that if you're an emergency physician in 2015 and there are guidelines that are being published both internationally and from a Canadian perspective, and they tell you to be judicious with the fluids, I don't think you have a leg to stand on if you're going to go rogue. So 
so if we have the crashing kid with cerebral edema, they might be coning and you want to reach for that mannitol or hypertonic saline. We had mentioned that we could use either or maybe even both. What does the literature say about which is better? Which one should we really be using, mannitol or hypertonic saline? Yeah, I think the problem is that there is no literature really around this. In the past, mannitol was the drug of choice, 0.5 to 1 gram per kilo. That requires a filter and it takes a little bit of time to get mannitol. And so in the last sort of five to 10 years, I would say 3% has gained in popularity, easier to get, quicker to give. And in my experience, it seems like intensivists that work at my center would use it preferentially. Those doses can be repeated. And if the child doesn't respond to one, often the second agent is used. It doesn't appear to me from a review of the literature that there's very good evidence for one versus the other, to be perfectly honest, and it often depends on just availability in your own eMERGE. I would just add that you don't need to be just giving this for the kid who's coning. These medications are recommended in the child who present who is altered in an attempt to prevent that herniation, okay? So that's a very key message. If you look at the algorithms for the child who's altered where you think they have cerebral edema, these medications are given. Yeah. And if you start that, if you've already started therapy, you started your normal saline, you give mannitol or hypertonic saline, whatever you have available, make sure that you restrict the fluid then that you're already giving to about one third of the maintenance. Dr. Reed, you had mentioned that sodium bicarbonate was not part of the algorithm of pediatric DKA at the top of the podcast. Now, I remember learning in medical school many eons ago that it was very controversial whether to give bicarb or not for a patient in DKA whose pH was really bad, like under 6.9. What do the latest guidelines recommend about giving bicarb in pediatric DKA? Should we ever be considering bicarb in in a really sick patient? So the only mention of bicarb in the new CDA guidelines from 2013 is that it may be considered in a patient who's in cardiovascular collapse, so the arresting patient. The DKA kid who's arresting is extremely rare. I mean, have you ever seen any any kids like that? Never. So so this is going to be your worst nightmare, and this is when you're throwing the book at a kid who's going to die. So suffice to say that there is no role for sodium bicarb in DKA unless the kid is pre-arrest. Yes, that's right. It, it might, might worsen the acidosis in the ner- central nervous system, and it'll probably inhibit the clearance of ketones. So it's counterproductive. Yeah, there's a recent review from the last couple of years that looks at the systematic review of all the evidence related to bicarb. And just like everything else in DKA, the evidence is very poor. And there's nothing to really support the use in terms of a rapid repair of acidosis and an improvement in CNS function. And because of the proposed um, difficulty with the increased CNS acidosis and the, the potential for harm that has been shown in some of the little studies, the conclusion of that systematic review was that there's really nothing to support the routine use of sodium bicarb in pediatric DKA. Got it. We've been talking about acidosis quite a bit in DKA. In that rare event where you might need to intubate the child with DKA who's severely acidotic, what pearls and pitfalls can you give us about intubating that patient and maintaining their airway? This is going to be a very risky procedure for the patient. You are going to want the most experienced operator doing this. You're going to want to know what their pre-intubation PCO2 is because you want to be titrating your vent settings to get them where they were because you're not going to want to overventilate them, taking away that drive or underventilating them and allowing their CO2 to rise, um, causing worsening CNS acidosis. This is a super scary patient to intubate and ventilate. So I would suggest that this is a patient that you would want to temporize with some non-invasive support while you're talking to a PICU specialist before you take this step. Obviously, if this is a crashing, herniating patient, you're going to just need to do it and do a brief period of hyperventilation to see if you can get that pupil back to size. But I would otherwise really try and do it in a controlled manner with some support from somebody who knows this is a just, I can't even stress how high risk this procedure would be in this type of patient. Okay. I guess the general principle here is that the kid's trying to blow off that, that CO2 and they're huffing and puffing and huffing and puffing. And if they're breathing at 40 a minute and then you intubate them and you're breathing for them at 20 a minute, 
that CO2 is going to go through the ceiling and they're going to arrest. Okay, so suffice to say that the vast majority of these kids are going to be mild, moderate DKA. And if we manage them appropriately in the first place, then none of this should ever happen. We shouldn't need to even think about intubating kids with DKA. And even the kids with severe DKA, most of those we don't need to intubate either. They generally do well as long as we do the appropriate management. So we've covered how to manage the first two hours of mild, moderate, and severe DKA. What about after that? We need to be aware of the potential complications of DKA treatment, hypoglycemia, hypokalemia, hypochloremic acidosis, and perhaps cerebral edema. How do you monitor these kids and how do you adjust their treatment as you go? In particular, how do you adjust the amount of insulin, the amount of glucose, and the fluids that you're getting? We've talked about how to start the fluids, how to start the insulin, how to start the potassium. How do you adjust them as you go? How do you monitor these kids? So we would monitor the patient with bedside glucose done every hour and the electrolytes and the gas is repeated every sort of two to four hours as they're getting better. So generally we have a saline lock in another hand to do all those blood tests. And as their acidosis is correcting, we would add in dextrose into the IV solution to maintain the sugar at a higher level as the acidosis slowly corrects. So So that's the big difference is that you add in either D10 or D5. You want to make sure that that sugar doesn't repair too quickly and that their osmolality just gradually gets back to normal. And so, you know, the, the details of it are probably not as important for this discussion because this is all outlined in the algorithm that you would receive from your pediatric referral hospital to help you stepwise through this. And in general, when these kids are admitted to hospital, the diabetes specialist is making those decisions at each time point. And in general, the principles are that as the metabolic derangements correct, um, we want to maintain our sugar in sort of the 10 to 15 millimole per liter range. So you add in sugar to the IV fluid, maintaining your insulin at the same level usually to repair the acidosis. So what you don't want to do is get worried about your sugar and then turn down the insulin because what you have to correct is the acidosis. So generally sugar is added either at a D10 or D5, depending on how quickly the patient is uh, correcting from a sugar perspective and the insulin infusion is maintained. From a potassium perspective, as we mentioned earlier, if the potassium is less than 5.5 and the patient has peed, we add potassium into the IV fluid, into the normal saline, and it's usually at a level of 40 millimoles per liter, but between 20 and 40 millimoles per liter. And then you're going to be doing your serial electrolytes as the patient is being treated, and you may need to titrate that up or down, but that is generally adequate. So we had touched on disposition near the top of the podcast. In terms of the child with mild DKA, most of those kids, especially the ones over five years old, can be sent home. And the really, really sick kids, well, that's easy. They're going to be admitted to the ICU. What about all those kids in the middle? Which ones can be admitted to the floor? Which ones could be potentially sent home? And which ones need to go to the ICU? What are your criteria for, first of all, a safe discharge home? And second of all, admission to the floor? Yeah, so I think we kind of alluded to this earlier, the very mild DKA, who's older, so above five years of age with good community support, et cetera, is usually discharged home as long as they're tolerating PO fluids. Everybody else gets admitted. And then when we're talking about severe DKA, our criteria where I work is pH of less than 7.1 or a child who's under the age of two or anyone with a concern about cerebral edema goes to ICU. So in, in our center, and it depends on resources and assessments at the time, but the uh, intensivist will come down and help us manage DKA in the emergency department and help the inpatient team manage on the floor, but they may not admit them to the ICU even with the severe parameters as long as their mental status is normal and they are able to drink and they're old enough that we can make some good clinical judgments. So while there's regional variability in which kids can go home, which kids should be on the floor, and which kids will end up in the ICU, the guidelines that Trek came out with just this year are that the criteria for safe discharge home include resolution of acidosis following treatment of mild DKA with subcutaneous insulin and monitoring in consultation with a pediatric diabetes specialist, that the criteria for hospital admission are 
moderate DKA requiring IV fluid, IV insulin infusion, and close monitoring. And the criteria for transfer to an ICU would be severe DKA, that is a pH of less than 7.1 or a bicarb less than 5, with or without signs of cerebral edema, or children less than two years of age who are at high risk for cerebral edema can be admitted to the ICU for close observation, again, depending on local practice. Dr. Reed and Dr. Curtis are now going to talk about some specific tacit knowledge experience that they've had with DKA. When Trek came out with their list of the high-impact topics that were chosen for outreach across Canada, I wasn't surprised to see DKA there because of the risk of cerebral edema in kids and that being quite different from adults. And the fact that in my own practice, we serve a very large region and get a lot of referrals and a lot of phone calls from peripheral hospitals. And there have been many times that myself and I know my colleagues have received calls where physicians who aren't as comfortable dealing with kids are very worried when they see this sick kid and they see the acidosis and they aggressively bolus um, sometimes giving a bolus of insulin and not infrequently also using bicarb. Now, I think that there's been some practice change over the last sort of three to five years where I'm, I'm not hearing that as much, but for sure at the beginning of when I was first staff, I received many calls like that. And so I think it just behooves us all to just remember that there are, these algorithms exist. There's no reason um, to try and remember it. Who can possibly remember these, this detail. And so just reaching for the algorithm and knowing where to find it is just, is just so key to make sure that your, your management is up to date. And here's a case from Dr. Curtis that didn't go so well. So this is a, a side case from Janice General of a kid whose parents called into the pediatrician on call to ask about advice for vomiting. So this is a five-year-old little girl who was vomiting. They didn't really report any other symptoms, but the pediatrician kind of uncovered polyuria and polydipsia during those past few days and advised them to come into the hospital, you know, that night. They weren't keen on coming. Um, they just thought it was a stomach bug and, you know, thought that things would be better in the morning. So they put her to bed and in the morning she wasn't rousable. So they brought her into the emergency department. Very quick bedside glucose made it obvious that she was in DKA with her gas and she was unfortunately um, had cerebral edema and then coned despite repetitive treatments with mannitol and ICU intervention. So the, the case kind of speaks to me a little bit because, you know, it's just such a high risk thing. A young child um, with vomiting, not really fitting any other medical problem. There was no diarrhea, no fever, nothing else going on there. And looking back, she had had polyuria and polydipsia, which was sort of missed by the family or not understood by the family and really didn't come to attention at a time. The child is in that high-risk category of being young, right, five years of age. The other high-risk feature for her was not having had a previous diagnosis of diabetes. So this is a, the kind of the classic cerebral edema picture, new-onset diabetes, young age. And so that really just helps me to remember that those kids, you really just have to have them seen by an acute care physician and really just get that rapid glucose or at least a urine. Yeah. I mean, that really echoes for me because I've seen that more than once myself, the delayed presentation. And it's interesting when you read about DK and even in the CDA guidelines, they talk about the fact that, you know, our treatment is pretty good, but some kids will present with this problem and we're not really sure exactly what the pathophysiology is. And it's obviously very complex. And so they really stress that the, the way to prevent cerebral edema and DKA is to prevent the DKA in the first place. And for all physicians to be thinking about diabetes in kids and just screening for it when it's an odd presentation or it's a vague presentation, adding in those little questions about weight loss and polyuria and polydipsia and keeping it on the radar. There's been a few studies that have shown that kids who present in DKA, many of them will have seen a doctor in the previous week. So we're missing diabetes and that's causing kids to present later in DKA. So just to put it on our radar and keep it there, I think is really important. so awesome. I'd like to thank again the two Sarahs, Dr. Sarah Reed and Dr. Sarah Curtis for their amazing work on this month's podcast. And before we go, I'll leave you with this month's quote of the month. And this one is from Fred Rogers, who actually, believe it or not, is my wife's godfather. Anyone 
who does anything to help a child in his life is a hero to me. So until next time, take it easy. Take it easy.